0: looking at our source, our purpose, our life. Who who are we? uh, Who did God create us to be? What was his intent in the beginning? Uh, When you look around the world, uh, it it is not the way God wanted it. It's not the way God intended, um, not the way God began things. Um, Certainly he is sovereign and certainly he is uh, doing a mighty work and his purposes are not lost even in the fall. Um, We we know that God is, is sovereign over these things. And, uh, and is moving and, and using these things to ultimately bring glory to himself, but that's a sermon for another day. But what is our source, our purpose, our life? What is it really about? In chapter 11, really, I, I think one of the questions that's answered or that we is considered in this is, is really uh, what is God's plan and what is God's purpose for my life? In fact, what is, the, what is the plan and the purpose that I'm pursuing? What's the goal? What is the trajectory of my life? What am I really living for? Whose fame, whose story am I trying to build? Am I jumping in on God's big story, or am I going off on my own way trying to present my own, to lift myself up, to make myself something incredible? In fact, a lot of of what is pushed out there for Christianity, a lot of the messages in um, Christianity in the West are very me-centric, very um, egocentric, and very, you know, not God-centered. We'll see that in a moment, and that's part of what we find in the, in the Tower of Babel situation. So we have a new world, fresh start, um, and then their children's children are given a, a command to populate the earth, to spread out over the whole earth, subdue it, populate it, multiply. God blesses that, and what do they do? They set up camp, and they begin to centralize. They begin to centralize instead of spreading out as God has intended for them to do it. So God's plan was for them to spread out, Populate, enjoy, subdue the earth. Um, he gives them the gift and the blessing of, of procreation, and 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 the, and he was had blessed them in the fact that he had preserved them through the flood, and they're having children, their their families are growing, and and then they say no, and say you know what, let's unify, let's see what we can accomplish, our own way apart from God's plan. That's basically what what the story, um, what happens. And so let's look at verse one. Let's see what we find here. Now the whole earth chapter 11, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them together. And they used brick, uh, brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth and so basically the people that are left i mean they're they're there at this point five generations now based upon chapter 10 there's a guy by the name of peleg um, p l p e l e g and it says that he lived during the time when um, when the nations were scattered and so that marks five generations down now um they are coming up with a plan. They're not scattering, as God has told them, and they're centralizing. You're saying, you know what? Let's let's stick together, and let's see what we can do. And so you have this, um, this nation-building thing where they're trying to make this unified people and stay in one place, and that was not God's plan for them. God's plan was for them to spread out. They didn't do it, and so they're disobedient. And then the other thing is their motives behind it become a major problem. Basically, in summary, you could say of this people that they were, um, they were a rebellious people. In fact, that's our... That's our first point. They they were a rebellious people. You see that um, they had incredible achievements. I mean, advanced architectural, mathematical ability um, to design and build this massive structure. I mean, some some ancient structures like the pyramids, which are be similar to what we'll look at some pictures here in a minute of what this structure would have looked like. It's called the most people believe um, historians and archaeologists would call it a ziggurat. It's this tiered building, much like a pyramid. And again, we'll look at an example of that here in a moment. But they had this great technological, mathematical ability that early on. Obviously, God had given them. Um, and, and civilization is very rapidly um, growing in their knowledge and their awareness. Um, and I think a lot of this was pre-flood information that they carried over. And, and so now they're, um, they're building these amazing structures. You see technological achievements. You see political achievements. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Nimrod. It was known to be a mighty man and a um, hunter. Many people believe that he was kind of the father of and began to establish the Babylonian people. Um, he was the, the forefather of the Babylonians, which is where modern-day Iraq is. They've continued to be a little bit of an issue in world um, events. And so uh, you have this guy, Nimrod, who establishes in this political achievements of establish, establishing this, uni, this um, unified government. And, and somehow, you don't just get a bunch of people to come together to build a building without some kind of uh, coercion and force and, and some kind of persuasive abilities. And so somehow, this strong guy and other people with their authority are able to get the populace of that day to come together for this common mission. And I can assure you it wasn't just peace, okay? So with power they and with political savvy, they bring these people together um, to, to, uh, to build this, tower reaching to god so we have technological achievements we see political achievements we see um lastly self-glorifying achievements this was um really about their fame and their resistance to god's plan in the end of verse four they said come let us build for ourselves a city towers whose top will reach into heaven let us make for ourselves a name really was it came down to who says god needs to be the one worship. Who says that we need to live our lives for the one true God? Oh, it flooded the earth. Yeah, he judged it, but he's not going to do it again. And, and who's to say that we have to live our lives for him? Why don't we just do what we want to do? Let's build a building. We can have power. We can do great things. We can do, God's just afraid of what we have the ability to do now, of our power. And you can just see how their thinking begins to um, to, to grow and to grow into this rebellion, this foolish rebellion against God. He said, well, how do you know it was rebellion? He says, let us make for ourselves a name That's that's part of the rebellious attitude. And then secondly, it says, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. First of all, they wanted to be famous, not God, number one. Number two, they wanted to do their plans and not God's plans. It's no different than the fall in the beginning. God says, look, I've given you everything you want. I've given you this incredible garden. Enjoy the whole thing. Enjoy all of the fruit. Enjoy all of this incredible bounty. You can eat it all. Enjoy it all. It's going to be incredible incredibly of everything except for I'm going to put one tree in the middle two trees actually one is the tree of life you can eat of that but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil stay away from that one, because if you eat of that tree you're going to die understand Adam yeah understand it yeah great everything's fine and then pretty quickly they begin thinking well maybe God is maybe God's holding out on us I mean, who's to say that in the serpent begins to tempt him are you really going to die? God just doesn't want you to know what he knows. And so what you need to do, and he begins to tempt them by challenging and questioning God's word and God's ways. God's word said, don't eat of the tree. And God's ways, because I've given you something far better. I've given you something far better. Don't go there. They question his word, and they question his ways. And it's the same thing happening here in chapter 11. Same thing. And so we see this rebellious people. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 51 and 52, you can write that verse down. It says, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in their thoughts or imagination of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and he has exalted those who were humble. See, at at the root of sin, sin at its very root, ultimately, whatever category of sin you want to put out there, ultimately, at its root, you're going to find rebellion. You're going to find rebellion. That's it at the at the beginning. This is where even children at the youngest age, um, they very quickly you see a, a bend a bent towards rebellion, even in children, even in little babies. You slowly begin to see as they begin to develop the, a need to not teach them how to do wrong, but to teach them what is right, because their bent is towards self-centeredness. It's my toy, my stuff, my time, my food, my this, my that. You know, kids are not born perfect, okay? They, they, they have a, they're broken, they have a sin nature as all of us began with. Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, you're born, I'm, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you're born dead in your trespasses and sins. That's how we're born, spiritually dead towards God, apart from God, bent towards evil. And, and so when you give man enough time, you begin to see, Rebellion to surface, begins to surface. So rebellion against God is right for sovereignty, is right for lordship and independence from God, or God neglect. I, I think it was John Piper, I heard him say not long ago, um, when asked, what, what is the greatest sin of America? And he said the greatest problem, the greatest sin of America, and, and I'm, I'm thinking of all the different things he might say, and what he says is God neglect. Our greatest guilt is God neglect. And ultimately, at the root of God, neglect is rebellion. I don't need God because I can do things myself. I can do things my way. I have a better plan. That's rebellion. And so uh, you say, well, that's not the way I think. Well, is is that not the way that we think? I mean, you know what? Christianity in America, somebody did a research study um, several years ago, probably about five years ago. And he came to the conclusion that um, th- the form of Christianity that, that is pervasive in America is really what he titled um, moralistic, okay, I'm sorry, let me start off, therapeutic moralistic deism. Therapeutic moralistic deism. Let me, let me explain this. Therapeutic. It's really about self-help. We're going to fix everybody's sick. We're going to help them. We're going to fix them. We're going to give them a- moralism. You know, you need to do better. Do hard. Work harder. You need, to, and even churches this is what they preach. Our first sermon series we did here at Cross Life to fight against moralism was Galatians, which is a book that says, you know at the law and circumcision and works of your flesh will never save you. It is the gospel, pure and simple. It is the grace of God that you're saved. It is not so. So hope I hope you never hear. In fact, that's the value we talked about last week, uh, as we went over our core values was gospel centered. We're not. We're hopefully, God forbid, we ever would be a church. That would push on people moralism if you do these things god will be pleased with you god is pleased with you purely and simply in and through christ he, he is pleased and delights in the life of christ and when jesus is inside of you he sees the righteousness of christ inside you and that's why you're pleasing to god not because of anything you do or don't do it is not moralism so therapeutic moralism. Deism. What is a deist? A deist is somebody who believes there's a god, but he's far and distant. He's not involved in the intricacies of everyday. And that's how we live, self-sufficient apart from God. Yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I yeah, I'm, I'm I love Jesus. Yeah, I. But ultimately, practically, our lives are are deistic, or practically we live as practical atheists. This is interesting. I got in a big conversation with with a. Um, A girl that I I grew up with she was down the street from me as a as a um, uh, as a child in Miami Florida Uh, and um, she she's kind of my um, kind of left wing just out there friend on Facebook so anytime I write something kind of whatever that's you know politically or spiritually you know different than what she believes she will always come out with a question or say something's crazy and we have a really good little dialogue on there and so uh, I made a statement about the fall of Babylon and how America looks a lot like Babylon and the, the four steps to how Babylon fell and um, and why, you know, just just a couple of quick thoughts. And she said, that's really interesting. That's why we should probably look at the socialistic Scandinavian nations for an example of, of um, a life apart from religion and as a way that we should live. And I thought, oh, great, here we go. So so I, I you know, put my um, response out there. Basically, in the end, what she said what she said to me in her post was, Um, you think that religion is the solution, I think it's the problem. You think religion is the solution, I think it's the problem. And that's what atheism believes today. The problem with our world, the problem with our wars in the Middle East, the problem with conflict, the problem with all of the the fights and the divisiveness in our nation politically, all that stems back to people pushing their morals and other people based upon their religious beliefs. And so if we eliminate religion, we can finally have peace on earth. That's the assumption. Well, uh, believe it or not, I actually don't completely disagree with you. I mean, religion is largely the problem. But understand that atheism and agnosticism and Marxism are also belief systems. Secular humanism is is a religious belief system based upon religious um, convictions you, you can no more prove that there is no God than, than I can arguably prove that there is a God. I think the evidence points to there being a God. You think the evidence points to there not being a God. Both of us at some point have to make, we make our statements and our beliefs on some level are faith-based statements. And so you're, you are you are as religious as I am. And so you can't say that religion is the problem. And then, and then we went a little further. As I began to research, do you know that under Stalin and Hitler and um, Mussolini and all these different, Communist leaders that that ta- took the thinking of Marxism. Marxism basically um, is, is secular humanism that there is no God and and we need to um, control the masses and we should have an elite controlling party and then everybody else is the working mass and that has been Marxism has been fleshed out in communism and socialism. Okay, um, I'm going to come back around to it. I'm not like I'll land the plane in a minute, but track with me for a second. And so, I I said that under these, there's been estimated that 100 to 150 million people have died under atheistic communism. Atheism is not the solution. It's largely the greatest problem. The only other group that's killed more people is Muslims have killed over that. um, when, When you put together the number of Christians Muslims have killed, you put together the number of Buddhists and the number of Hindus, which, by the way, Islam is not a peaceful religion. You say, well, what about Christians? They've killed a lot of people, and yes, people have been murdered under the name of uh, Christ, and that's where we go back to the Crusades that happened um, and when they attacked uh, Muslims in the, in the Middle East, and they killed Jews, and they killed Muslims, and you're talking about, um, there was, a, I think it was about 5 million people were killed, mostly in battle, but nonetheless, um, Muslims were killed, and Jews, by Christians, wrongfully, wrongfully, and then uh, under European expansion they moved to South and North America and there's another um, 10 to 15 million people were killed underneath the auspices of of European expansion and but the European Catholic Church was connected with that and so they 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 shouldered some of the blame in that so now I would say that that is not who we are we're we believe in biblical Christianity not European Roman Catholicism from a thousand years ago right or 500 years ago so let's put the numbers. Atheism, we're talking 150 million people dead. Over 200 million people dead because of Islam. Christianity, under the name of Christ, there has been um, tens of thousands killed, certainly, but statistically low. But under the name of Christ, over this last century, more people have been martyred, for Christ, than any other group. And there is over 100,000, I think it's around 150,000 Christians martyred every year. Every year, 150,000. Christ has called us not to go to kill to advance our cause, but to lay our lives down to advance our cause. We die so others can live. And that has been the mark of Christianity through the centuries. Through the centuries. It is radically different, radically different than other belief systems. But understand, there's a battle going on in our nation of of what is called secular humanism. And secular humanism is a pretty version of Marxism. Secular human, and I would encourage you to do some research when you go home and look up at the humanist manifesto, uh, number one, number two, and number three. There's three manifest, humanist manifestos. This is very similar to the communist manifestos in Europe, humanist manifestos. By the way, there's a guy by the name of John Dewey. Anybody know who John Dewey was? Who is he associated with? He is the father of modern um, education, our modern education system. And he was a secular humanist. He was a communist. And he believed if we can get children out of their families and we can stick them into common schools, we can teach them what we want them to know. And what we want them to know is there is no God. And we will raise them. We will educate them. We will train them under secular humanism. And here's what secular humanism believes. A system, it is a system of thought that rejects religious beliefs and centers on, human, on humans and their values, capacities, and worth secular humanism you said where did the world exist did it it begin with creation was there a divine creator that that purposed everything no everything evolved it just just happened it just happened there's no purpose behind you there's no which would say that there's no common morality you say well how big of a deal is this well back a hundred years ago roughly it's a little over a hundred years ago when darwin's origin the species was published within several years of that um, less than a decade um, harvard put uh, an evolutionist as the top, the president of their school. This used to be a seminary, by the way. And he began to teach in every department. This is very relevant, so follow me for a second. This will help you understand where things are and how we need to respond to this as believers. Um, he began to, they began to put evolutionist, evolutionary thinking um, people over each of the department heads. So for instance, science, that's a no-brainer. They put evolution over science. Okay, we would expect that. But they also put evolutionists over the religious department. What does that mean? Well, that means that Christianity is a religion that has evolved. Just like things evolve from simplicity to complexity, all religions must evolve from simplicity to complexity. Which means that Judaism, with the Levitical system and the law and all the stuff I'm talking about that happened at the, at the Tower of Babel, they would say is impossible for this. There's no way that humanity was that developed back then. Why? Because they've already made a decision that things have to evolve from simplicity to complexity. They do not believe that God could have presented the truth, could have invaded the world and put his truth in there. Does that make sense? Okay, so that, that's religion. Now let's look at law. Used to be um, Blackstone's, I think, Book of Law is what they used, which was basically book based upon the law of, of the word of God, that there's absolute truth. And we shifted our whole legal system to case law. Everything is case law driven. So we, that, what that means is that our morals and what we believe about certain things, like, for instance, um, homosexual marriage, you know, should homosexuals be allowed to get to be married? Uh, well, based upon case law, society's convictions can change. And so based upon how one judge, judge rules or another judge rules or another, we can slowly begin to change the morals of a nation through case law. And you don't make decisions based upon what the law states. You based, make decisions based upon what other judges have said. Does that make sense? You see how it's constantly changing and forming? And that's how we found ourselves where we're at right now as a nation. The, the law is dead, it's gone. And we are a godless, secular, humanist nation. If she said to me, um, this, this friend of mine, um, she made the statement that that's why, maybe um, that's why um, that the religious countries like America, much like Rome, God-fearing nations need to fall or something like that. And I'll I, I correct her, i said, I'm sorry, but America is not a God-fearing nation. We are not a Christian nation. We had our origins in being a Christian nation. We had our origins of being a God-fearing nation, but we have long since punted God. We are a secular, humanistic nation, okay? We we believe in natural laws and natural things. That nature solves all of our problems. It has nothing to do with God. So what does this have to do with anything? That is the whole argument of the Tower of Babel. We can build a building. We can build a tower. We can get to God by ourselves. We can do it through political Uh, We can do it through our own scientific ingenuity. We can do it through our own um, knowledge and wisdom and and our own power. We don't need God. We can do it ourselves. And as Christians, it's time we wake up to the reality that we are frogs in a big pot that's slowly being turned up. And at some point, we need to wake up to the reality that we need to begin to re-educate ourselves that there is absolute truth, that there is one God and begin to deal with these arguments that are being presented like religion is the problem. When Christians go to Islamic countries to feed people who are starving, for the people who are starving to spit in their face, and they say, God bless you, would you like another plate? And they continue to lay down their rights, lay down their lives to serve other people. I'm sorry, but Christianity, biblical Christianity, is by far the solution. It's the solution. It's God's plan for redemption, for rescue, for restoration in the world. And, I, you know, "Well, so what do you think about the political state of our country and all that stuff? Well, I'm not even going to get there. I, you don't even want me to go any further down that road. But I will tell you, depending on who you vote for on Tuesday, is going to depend on how we're going to, whether we will rapidly continue this decline or whether we will a little more slowly continue to decline. But either way, we are con- going to continue to decline. Does it make sense? And so we need to be more concerned about turning the souls of people of sharing the gospel with people so that their hearts and lives can be changed. That's the only hope for our nation. But I digress. Uh, so practical atheism. What does that mean? Well, here's the problem. We can look at other people. We can judge them for their beliefs. We can judge them for what they think. We can get mad at our nation. We can get all upset at, at our school systems and our, our universities and w- the media and how all of these people are together. Hollywood. Constantly pushing us off the cliff into secular humanism, or we can confess and repent that we have become secular humanists. We are—you might not say you don't believe in God, but let me ask you: How do you live your life? So we, we become practical atheists. In other words, we function as atheists when when we uh, build a life apart from God. We're going to build a tower. We're going to find a way. We're going to get. How do you construct your life? I mean, how do you make your decisions? I mean, what, what, is your, what is your career? What is your marriage? What is your family? What is your decisions on what you buy and what you don't buy and what you eat and what you don't, what you do and what you don't do and who, what you, how you spend your time and all those things? What have you constructed your life around? I mean, have you ever paused for a second to pray and to yield your life plans to God and say, God, do you want me to do this or to do that? You see, we've we kind of punted God to the margins, and we 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 yield to Him on Sundays, and we worship Him, and we love God, and we have coffee mugs that have things about God, and we have little placards around our houses that have things about God, and we might occasionally read, wear a Christian T-shirt, or have a bumper sticker, or something like. But but functionally, practically, we constructed we've constructed lives apart from God. We need to repent of that. That's the problem with the world is that there's no salt left in it to contrast. The, the evil that's out there, the light has been diminished so great because Christians aren't living, un, you know, yield, uh, yielded and surrendered to God and they don't look that much different than the people of the world. They say, The difference between us, they say they don't believe in God, we act like we don't believe in God because we live as practical atheists. Uh, practical atheism, when we seek, we are practical atheists when we seek our own community apart from God. When we, when we build, construct a life apart from God. Where is your community? Who are your people? This is why life groups are so critical for us. And to be in small groups and fellowship in small groups. Because we, I cannot live a life yielded to Christ apart from the fellowship of other believers. I mean, I need people to get in my face and say, you know what? You're a little bit of a hypocrite in this area. Or, or you're being a little this or a little that. or whatever. To cause me, to, to challenge me, to spur me on, to encourage me. I need the fellowship of believers. I don't need to just see you guys once a week and we all wave at each other and we have a little conversation lobby and then we scatter and we never really take the masks off and really talk about what's really going on in your life. What's how, what are you constructing your life on? What are you struggling with? What what are you what's happening in your heart? What where's your anxiety coming from? Where, what are you frustrated? Why are you so angry? What's going on? What are why are you so worried? All of those reveal a life constructed independent from God. Secondly, we live as practical atheists when we try to accomplish our own salvation. Not only am I going to construct a life, but I'm going to save myself. I'm going to save myself. You've heard us talk about this before. It's called functional saviors. What are the functional saviors in your life? What are the things that you look to to save you in your life? Where do you go to, to find a fun- a savior is something that gives you peace, that gives you hope, that gives you um, life, where do you go to get peace? Where do you go to get hope? Where do you go to get life? Is it media? Is it, is it a hobby? Is it um, some kind of chemical? I mean, what is it that you run to that when, when you're really stressed out or life's falling apart, what is it that you run to for your salvation? And I would say that's your functional savior. That's the thing that you look to. Could be a relationship, could be your children, could be a lot of different things. What is the functional Savior in our life? Because we, we are living as practical atheists or deists, apart from God, when we try to save ourselves through our own ingenuity. For uh, Adam and Eve, they sinned. And what's the first thing they did? They begin to try to cover their nakedness by sowing coverings of leaves. That would never cover their shame. Would never deal with their guilt. And we do the same thing. We try to construct our own covering, our own salvation through functional saviors that we pursue. Now, the problem with functional saviors is they are so sneaky and deceptive. Again, it's really hard to see them with your own eyes. And that's where you really need people around you that can speak the truth and love, and, and that you're willing to be honest. And they're honest with you. we model a community of honesty where we can help one another discover their functional saviors. So I, I can I can easily point the speck out in your eye, but I look past the log of my own. And, and so if 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 I would let other people help me see my log, then I can help them with respect, you see? And we can help one another. Does it make sense? Functional saviors. Uh, thirdly, we, we live as practical atheists when we live for our fame. When we live for our fame, when, when we live for our story, what, what does that mean? Well, let me ask you this. Who is the center? Who is at the center of your theology? Your view of God? Do you believe in a God who makes much of you? Or do you believe in a God who you make much of? That's bottom line. Does God exist for you or do you exist for God? That is a penetrating, dangerous question. But I would encourage you to think through that. What do you believe about God? When you talk to people about it and you begin to discover it, there's a lot of things that we have just taken on and assumed that we really never submit to reason and to God's word to say, is this really right? Like, why did God make you? Well, God made me because he was lonely. He wanted somebody to hang out with. No, he didn't make you because he was lonely. He didn't create Adam and Eve because he was bored. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, though separate in personalities, are unified in one, and they are doing great together. They don't need more friends. They have one another. They're doing great. So God, in eternity past, which we can't even comprehend, didn't, you know, he didn't one day just go, you know what, I'm just kind of sick of myself and, you know, Fathers, I'm sick of you. The son and son, you know, I don't like the Holy Spirit, and I'm sick of him. And yeah, well, let's make somebody else to play with. Okay, let's do that. That's not what God did. God created us so somebody else can enjoy how amazing and wonderful and perfect and great He is. God did not create you because He missed you. He needed you. He had to have somebody to love Him. No, He didn't. He loved Himself. You say, well, that is so prideful and egocentric. Yeah. It, how could God be anything other than that? If God loved you more than he loved himself, that would make God an idolater. And that would kind of break the whole godness thing. He no longer is God if he loves anything else. But we have constructed theologies where we're the center. God makes much of me. God needs me. God loves me. I cringe when people are like, well, my God wouldn't do, well, my God wouldn't, well, my God. And, and it, God is a personal God. He tells us to call him Abba Father. But but sometimes we we treat God like he's this, you know, little dog that we do order around to do whatever we want come here god go there god go there god do this god do that god is not some giant gumball machine okay where you put your money in you turn the knob and you get whatever you ask for it, and if you want to know what people think about god and you want to know what their theology is when tragedy strikes who do they blame when stuff doesn't come the way that they thought it was going to win when, when disease hits when when suffering hits when tragedy hits they can't sing a song like we just sang a moment ago Oh, God, you you never let go. Through the trials, through the storms, you never let go. Sometimes God blesses us, and and, and we enjoy the blessings of God. Everything's wonderful, but sometimes tragedy strikes, and there's bad things happen. We live in a fallen world, okay? And and, and then we get mad at God. God, that's not fair. I can't believe you would make me suffer. I can't believe you would take the life of my loved one or sickness or disease or whatever we get mad at god as if we are the center of the universe instead of yielding ourselves and resting in the reality that i'm so thankful that i believe in a sovereign god whose ways are not my ways who sees what i cannot see who has a plan that is far bigger than mine because in my little tiny pea-sized brain i don't like the way things are unfolding but I can trust and I can yield and I can rest in the fact that God sees the whole picture, that he is working on something far bigger than my little slice of the pie. And I can just yield myself and trust him in the unknown and walk safely into the darkness, knowing that that he will guide me through it, that he has a purpose, he has a plan. Whether I I ever see it, the Bible is full of, let's look at Hebrews 11, those who lived and served and, and, and pursued God as he promised a city that they never saw on earth, and they died not getting to see the thing which God had promised them until they got to heaven. That's what it means to live by faith. It means to live for that which is not, you can't put your hands around that, which you don't see, but you know is true nonetheless because God said it was true. And so are we a people who Hebrews 11 says is not ashamed, that God is not ashamed of them because they live for a city not made with human hands? Love that passage in Hebrews. And that was God's call, that's what God is calling us to. Again, does God make much of you, or do you understand that God has created you to make much of him, to enjoy him? By the way, God wants you to be happy. He wants you to delight. He wants you to have joy in him. In him. And so he's gifted you with things. I, I love a good cup of coffee, but I, I don't drink a cup of coffee and just, you know. That's for me to get an excuse to drink some coffee right there. But I don't drink this and just go, I'm so good. I mean, I'm so good. I'm so deserving of this. Mm, it's a little cool, but good nonetheless. I, I drink this, and I, I can go, you know what, man? Praise God for coffee. Whoever came up with the idea to roast the bean, to grind it, to brew it. To, But I'm thankful for them, and I'm thankful God made coffee. Praise God for coffee. Coffee is not my God. I'm so thankful, but it 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 lifts me up to worship. I don't you don't stare at the beauty of, of the Appalachian Mountains or the Rocky Mountains or the Grand Canyon and go, I am so good, man. I'm amazing. Now you look at the Grand Canyon, you don't go, wow, how did this happen by accident? No, I look at the Grand Canyon or the Rocky Mountains or the beauty of fall in the Appalachians and go, man, God is so amazing. That he could make that He could speak this in existence. This is incredible that God would, could do all this stuff. God is awesome. And God is realigned as the center of my universe. Do you have the me, the world, theology, or is Christ the center? That is three symptoms of practical atheism I hope that you will prayerfully consider in your life. Well, we have a rebellious people, and then very quickly we have a scattered people. God says no. And it's not going to be like this. And he judges them. And so, verse 5, the Lord came down. That's not a good way to start a sentence right there. The Lord came down to see the city and tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have uh, the same language. And this is what they have begun to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and they're confused. By the way, us is a reference to, I believe, the Trinity, God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Nonetheless, uh, Let us go down, and they're confused, their language, so that they will not consider, that not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad, and they're over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city, and therefore its name was called Babel, which, interestingly enough, is kind of a play on words here. You see, that the word for... Um, for Babylon, comes from Babili, which is the uh, the root of that means the gate of heaven, the gate of God. It's the way to heaven, Is Babylon. And God takes this Babylon and he changes it to Babel and he confuses their language, beautiful. And so he changes their uh, their language and now they have all these multiple different languages. And so they're confused. And uh, from there, the, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So what is the evidence of that? How do we know that this really happened? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Um, if you look at these kind of pictures, this is a picture of Babylon um, and the temple to, that was built for Marduk. Marduk was one of their false gods that they worshipped in Babylon. And it is known as a ziggurat, which I mentioned earlier. And this is kind of modeled after. Most uh, archaeologists believe that this is this was kind of the building structure that, that they built based upon the archeo- uh, uh, architectural knowledge that they had um, at that time, which probably is a very similar structure to what Babylon or what the Tower of Babel would have looked like so here we have but but this is in the Middle East but then if if you travel with me to South America and we look at the Aztec temp- temples this is an Aztec temple what does that look like looks like a pyramid looks like the ziggurat and, and uh to Marduk right but let's go from there let's go to Asia and we go to Asia and we find in um in Miramar We have their circular structures um, as they go up, but at the bottom, they're they're square. And the same thing, we have this tiered structure. And if you go into other parts of Asia, it's the same thing, except the roof line comes out with a little curve at the end of the, it's the same thing. Where did they get the idea for this? Well, they got their idea because all of them came from the same group of people that were centered at the Tower of Babel when God changed their languages and scattered them over the earth. And they began to travel over the land bridge into North America and down into South America and throughout Asia and all over the known world, down into Africa. They scattered. And so, archaeologically, um, architecturally, we can see evidence that they all trace back to Look at the common flood stories that people groups all over the globe have a common version of uh, some catastrophic universal flood. Where do they get that idea from? And this answers a question that many of you probably pondered at times. What about those who have never heard the gospel? Is God going to send them to hell? Well, let me ask you a question. Has never, has, is there anybody that never heard of the one true God, we see, "Yeah, there's people born today." What about their grandparents? What about their grandparents' grandparents' grandparents? What about their father's 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 father? You trace back far enough, you come back to people that scattered throughout the earth that all came back to the Tower of Babel that knew there is one true God and only one God that is worthy of being worshipped, and they rebelled against Him, and He scattered them throughout the whole world. And yes, people die apart from Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, which is what motivates us missionally to share the gospel to the nations. But they all trace back to the time where they all knew about the one God, but they suppressed it, and they refused to tell the story of the fame of the one true God. Instead, they pushed their own fame. And because of that, we have generations after generations after generations who have died apart from Christ. Generation, uh, Genesis chapter eleven wraps up when it looks like it's all it's all lost. We start with perfect creation, then we have the fall, then we have a second chance where they have kids and they can start things over again and kids are always a great opportunity for a next you know a, a new start and and then one kid kills the other kid, and we have the first m- murder, then we have wickedness increasing on the earth, and God brings a universal flood to destroy everything and every living creature and you think after that they finally would get the idea, and then after the flood. Um, you have Noah and his family who are preserved but yet sin Noah sins and one of his sons sins and next thing you know there's there's sin again and then five generations later they're building a tower to try to proclaim how they are great apart from God and they rebel as a nation and it looks like there's no hope but it ends with the hope of a restored or rescued people the hope of a rescued people I want to just take a moment just to share with you the rest of the story this is just beautiful but in in genesis chapter 10 we're in 11 but if you go back one chapter when you count the number of people groups there's 70 some would argue 72 we'll just use the number 72 different people groups uh that that were scattered so there's 72 different languages that that it began on that day as those people scattered throughout the earth and so then we fast forward to the prophets and we see in isaiah chapter 2 verse um one uh verses one through four um that that god had a plan to to bring um, to establish a, a kingdom on earth where he would be the king of all nations not just the jewish people not just the jewish people and, and so he traced back to um chapter 11 we, we end with no hope chapter 12 god out of the people groups of the world calls a guy by the name of abram out and he says i'm going to establish my kingdom through you through you and he begins to to bring on this line of Abraham that would lead eventually to King David, to Moses, and King David um, and then eventually on right, Moses wasn't in the line, but that's another. But it leads to David and the Solomon eventually to Christ. And so Jesus comes after the prophets have foretold that God would establish a kingdom where all nations would come together. And Jesus comes and he lives on this earth. And uh, in Genesis chapter, I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends out on the first mission trip the 12 disciples sends out the 12 disciples and the 12 disciples go proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. He tells them, "Look, the harvest is uh plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray for the Lord of the harvest, to thrust out labors in the harvest." And then in Luke chapter 10, he doesn't send the 12, but now he sends the 72 disciples. 70, why 72? Why 72? This has been the the picture of the nations was summed up in 72. In fact, The Hebrew Old Testament was translated into a Greek version known as the Septuagint, which again is they had 70 scribes, 72 scribes that translated the Hebrew Bible into the universal language so everybody would be able to learn about the one true God. And then we have in Luke chapter 10, God sends out to the nations 72 disciples. What what is he doing? Well, he is gathering for him a people group from every tribe and every tongue. Then we go to Pentecost. After the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, Jesus says, look, wait, and uh, I'm going to send you, uh, I want you to go um, to Judea, Samaria, um, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, with the gospel. Take it throughout the whole world. But before you do it, wait, because I'm going to send, um, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to help you. And so they go and they wait, and they pray, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And at Pentecost, they get outside, and they begin to preach. And he Peter's preaching, I believe, in um, his heart language, and as he's preaching, there's people from lots of different tribes and tongues that are hearing the gospel, hearing the things of God in their own native languages. And so you have the gospel being preached, and people hearing it now in multiple angu- uh, languages. So what God has scattered, now He is He is proclaiming the way back to Him to all the nations. And they, those people that were there that day begin to spread out, and then the God the 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 disciples begin to spread out they begin to plant churches all over the known world and that brings us to revelation chapter 7 verse 9 john's vision of a heavenly family in heaven worshiping before the throne of every nation of every tribe of every people of every language standing before the the throne in front of the lamb of god who's jesus takes away the sins or took away the sins of the world what, what is god doing What God is doing is he's taking a rebellious people and he tells them scatter and populate the earth and they rebel and they come together and they refuse to go out. And God changes their language and they spread out through all the whole world under the judgment of God. But God in his grace and mercy has sent Jesus to be the rescuer and he sent his spirit to to indwell his believers to be the uh, instruments of rescue to go out to the whole nation as missionaries to, to do things as simple as packing a box praying for people that are laboring, talking to your neighbor, baking bread for the guy that just moved down the street from you or taking a meal to somebody who has a need and begin to reach out because the Holy Spirit has come into us and is a, God is a missionary God who is on a rescue mission to take the scattered peoples of the earth and unify them under the headship of Christ. That they would have Jesus as the center of their lives. That they would know the God who they were created to know and to enjoy forever. And that is God's mission and God's plan. What, what does that mean for you? Well, I, I would encourage you as we, as we wrap it up right now that you would just be praying about God. What are the areas where I live as a practical atheist? What are the areas where I have totally shifted off of your storyline and your great mission, which is in chapter 11 of Genesis, but woven through as we just saw throughout from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of, of Revelation, we see this plan where God is redeeming and calling a people who have rebelled apart from him back together to be rescued and to be rescuers so where do you fit in on that if you're going to find out where you fit on the missionary plan of god you're going to have to first deal with where, where am i at in my relationship with christ have i yielded my life to him am i yielding my life to him or am i living as a practical atheist am i living a life that looks more like a secular humanist than a follower of jesus christ surrendered and yielded to his plan and his mission which is to redeem the nations and bring them back into salvation uh through christ in a right relationship with God through Christ. Let's pray. Well, God, in these moments, God, as we just meditate and chew on, on what you've said to us through your word, Lord, I thank you for how awesome your, your word is that, God, you have not left us without a way back. You haven't left us scattered. You didn't just send us out and then just defend for ourselves, but, but you have constructed, you have made a way. In fact, even before the first sin, the Bible says that the lamb was slain before the foundations of the earth. You, This is your plan all along. And you are deserving of so much glory and honor and worship that you would call us to be a part of your mission. And so Father, for that we thank you and we worship you.